I am speaking to you this morning a special message regarding salvation and sanctification essentials. And I want to give you a little bit of backstory concerning that. Um, I invite and always appreciate um, you telling me how you feel and what you think. Uh, thank you so much. That's, um, that's important to me to get the pulse of the congregation and to kind of know where you are. And this week, I received a letter from someone in our congregation. Uh, it happened to land uh, in my inbox while I was in a licensing and ordaining committee meeting in Indiana. And as I read the letter, uh, I was struck by several things. First of all, it was very well written. It was very thoughtful. And uh, it was uh, carefully worded and very articulate. And uh, I commented to my superintendent with whom I was writing uh, on the way back. Um, I didn't uh, divulge any particulars, but I said, I, I got a letter today from someone in our congregation and he uh, expressed himself and wrote in a way that was uh, better than many of our uh, doctor of ministry, PhD, and master's degree uh, applicants for ministry. And so uh, that alone uh, impressed me significantly. Furthermore, it came from someone whom I greatly respect and for whom I have sincere admiration. And whenever you get uh, criticism from someone that you trust and have confidence in, and it's so carefully put together, uh, it behooves you to pay attention. Um, it's not a good idea to ignore your critics to begin with, uh, they may be more accurate than those that love you, <laughs> and, and uh, or yeah, they may love you too, but they may be more accurate than those that are always giving you accolades. And uh, in addition to that, it made me wonder, is there any chance that anything I've said in the last several months has been misunderstood? in a similar fashion so that some of you have left with the same kinds of impressions. And I say that because despite the quality of the letter, which was several pages in length, it was almost entirely wrong. And that was sad to me because it represented a significant misunderstanding. And uh, I want this morning to correct in no uncertain terms, uh, not in the negative, but in the positive. I'm not going to deal with statements that I think were inaccurate. I'm just simply going to present truth in a positive fashion. And I want to give you an invitation if you have heard me or believe you have heard me say something different than what I'm going to say this morning, I wish you would tell me. Um, sometimes we think we're communicating and we're not. And uh, all, all you have to, uh, to know uh, for sure to do that is to be married. <laughs> and that will quickly... Uh, verify that fact that we often say what we think we mean and what what is heard is not what we intended. So um, that's uh, kind of the way this goes this morning. But the topics arrange themselves around the subject of salvation and what is uh, essential in salvation as well as sanctification, the process of becoming holy or becoming like Christ. I think it's 
maybe better to say becoming like Christ in our behavior uh, and also uh, the carnal Christian. So I want to go over those this morning with you and you may um, you may have heard all of this before. I hope you did. I hope this is a repeat for you. But if I say something new today, uh, take note um, because I must have misspoke uh, in some other time. Uh, first of all, let's address the question, what is required for salvation? And by salvation, I mean restoring fellowship with God and receiving eternal life. How does that happen? What must we do to be saved? Uh, do, you, do you recall that, that was the question that they asked Peter? Uh, in, in Acts uh, chapter 2, 38, after Peter preached that initial sermon, they said, what must we do to be saved? They were pierced to the heart, the scripture says, and they asked an important question. And uh, the first thing that Peter said was, repent. You must repent. And then he said, in that verse, and be baptized, which was the outward testimony and an action of one who had turned toward God in faith. And so there are two essential elements required for salvation. Now, some people have tried to make these uh, elements works. And I want you to know that they are not works. The scripture says, For by grace we have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not a result of works that no one should boast. And many years ago, right after I came here, I went to a conference, and I heard a man by the name of David Breezy uh, give a message and a lesson on salvation and he made it abundantly clear that repentance and obedience and faith is not necessary to be saved. In fact, it is against the gospel. It is a work. And all that is required is for you to acknowledge that Jesus died on the cross for your sin. Another term that has been applied to that teaching is easy believism. And uh, it implies that all I have to do is give intellectual assent to the facts of the gospel. And the truth of the matter is that... Um, that is not all that's required by any means. Um, we are saved by grace. But the key that unlocks the, the uh, blessings of God's grace are the fact that we realize that we are headed in the wrong direction. And we need to turn around, do an about face and move toward God. And that we need to commit our lives to Him by faith. The word repentance itself means to have a change of mind. Or to go in the opposite direction. In the context of the gospel, it is a means to express sorrow for one's sin. And to acknowledge that God is right. And I am wrong. And I need to come to Him and I need to express to Him my heartfelt sorrow over my sinful practices and put my trust and confidence in Him by changing direction. The sinner's prayer should go something like this, Lord, I know that I am a sinner, that I have failed you, and that I have gone my own way. All we like sheep have gone 
our own way. We've turned aside from Him. And we need to come back and say, I want to follow you now. And that repentance, I've given you numerous verses starting all the way back in the Old Testament. But Jesus says, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. The disciples went about teaching, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The uh, apostles in the book of Acts and in the, in the letters of the New Testament constantly repeat the words, repent, repent, turn from your wicked ways and turn to God. That is absolutely essential. No one can come to Christ who does not turn from their sin. And then we must believe. We must have faith in His finished work on the cross. Some people repent and turn to Christ and then try to atone for their own sin. You know, and all you have to do is look around at people who are constantly doing good works, not because they want to please God so much, as because they want to make up for their sin. In fact, there is one uh, very popular um, religion in our community that teaches that you need to spend your whole life here doing good works in order to fill up your uh, void of righteousness. You need to build up your, your points. And whatever is left vacant when you die, you have to go to purgatory and complete. And once you have paid for all your sin then you can go into God's presence. Um, And the saints are the ones who are decreed by the church to have lived such godly lives that they escape purgatory and go immediately into heaven. And uh, nothing could be further from the truth. Faith means, first of all, that I put my faith in Jesus Christ as the atonement for my sin, the one who has paid the price, and I'm trusting Him alone for salvation. But it means more than that. It means that I am putting my life under His authority and in His care. Some of you who go way back with me recall the illustration that I gave of the famous tightrope walker who uh, walked across a great chasm uh, on the tight wire and uh, he went across and came back and he rode a bicycle across and came back and uh, then he got a wheelbarrow and he said, how many of you believe that I can push this wheelbarrow across the chasm. And the crowd by then, they thought he could do anything. They were enthralled and they said, yes, of course you can. And so he looked at one enthusiastic fellow on the front row and he said, you get in. Uh Uh-oh. Now I've got to put feet to my faith. But quite frankly, that is what faith in Jesus Christ means. It means that I trust Him to the point that I'm putting my life in His wheelbarrow. I'm trusting Him. He is now my Master. He is now my Lord. I will follow Him wherever He leads me. Some years ago, there was a big uh, hullabaloo about um, a teaching called Lordship Salvation. And uh, people were raising all kinds of cane about that. And um, they claimed you don't have to have Jesus as Lord in order to be saved. Uh, I want to correct that notion. 
you cannot have Jesus as Savior without taking Him as Lord. It is not possible. Can you imagine someone coming to an invitation uh, to the altar to, to be saved and praying something like this? Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. I am grateful for it and I want to take you as my Savior. Now I don't want you to be my Lord because I rather like living the way I do. And I'm going to continue to raise hell in my life and I just want you to let me be. And when it comes time to die, I want to go to heaven. How many of you think that person would be born again? I don't see any hands. Okay, good. You're all with me. Because it's not possible. If you don't come to faith in Jesus Christ with a commitment to follow Him, He cannot be your Savior. And if you read the Scriptures closely, you will find this reiterated again and again and again. Repentance and faith means I put my hope and trust in Jesus Christ alone and I will follow Him. I will live for Him. I give Him my life. Now, are you going to make mistakes from time to time? Are you going to uh, have occasion where you do what you know is wrong and it, you probably will. How many of you have, since you became a Christian, never sinned? Did I see your hand? Okay, good. You're still with the program here. Um, I'm not raising mine. I'm just giving an example. Because we do. However, if you're born again, and you have the Spirit of God living inside of you, and you sin, you're going to know it. You're going to feel guilty. You're going to feel a prick of your conscience. Friends, you can't have the presence of the Holy Spirit and the living God inside of you and not feel sorrow for sin. Even if you have a fit of rebellion, you're going to feel grieved over it. They have said, and I agree, that there is no more miserable person than a Christian who is not living in obedience because they're going to constantly come under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And that's not a pleasant place to be. And uh, sometimes he, his discipline can be very unpleasant if we persist because he's not willing to let us go our own way. But if we're his children, he disciplines us. This is in Hebrews chapter 12. He disciplines us for our good that we can share his holiness. And that is a part of his work in us. Are you with me so far? You're, you're understanding what I'm saying. Let's move to point two. How does the new birth relate to sanctification? Now, I talked about this not too many weeks ago. And I mentioned that there were several aspects to sanctification. First of all, the word itself has a dual meaning. It means to be set apart and made holy. The vessels for the tabernacle, and that's the best illustration I can give you, the vessels for the tabernacle, the, the table and the candlesticks and the tongs for the altar and all of that, were sprinkled with the blood in the dedication of the temple. They were set apart unto God. I want to tell you something about those Jews in the desert. 
If someone had said, you know what, I can't find my tongs, I'm going to run down to the temple and borrow those from the altar. And they took them home to barbecue with. You know what would happen to them? They would be killed. You can't use what's devoted to God for your own mundane daily purposes. It belongs to Him. It's set apart for Him. And because it is, it is made holy in His presence. Now what does that say about you? When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, among many other things that happen simultaneously, including justification, which I'll talk about in just a second, but when you come to faith in Jesus Christ, you are sanctified. You are set apart unto God. Amen. What does that mean? You can't put yourself to ordinary mundane use any longer. You are His temple. He lives in you. His Shekinah presence dwells in your Holy of Holies. And your life is devoted to Him. You can't be ordinary anymore. You have got to be a bearer of Jesus Christ and of His person and of His glory. We are designed to manifest Himself in this world. As Peter put it, people should look at you and say, why, why do you live the way you do? What's going on in you that makes you different? And you should be able to give a reason for the hope that is in you. People should recognize there's some difference in you. You don't look like they do. You don't act like they do. You know, you, you live differently. Um, I, I will never forget being at the firehouse one day and uh, I wanted a Coke and our Coke machine was a bit persnickety and uh, it was unreliable. And I put my quarters in and nothing came out. And I pounded on it a little bit and uh, nothing happened. And, you know, finally I just looked at it and I said, oh well. And the deputy chief was walking by me and he stopped dead in his tracks. And he looked at me and he said, what did you say? And I said, oh well. <laughs> he said, oh, I thought you said, oh hell. And I couldn't, I couldn't believe that was coming out of your mouth. Why? Because they had never heard me use profanity. They had never once heard it come from my lips. And I got torqued a few times. But I kept my cool. And they didn't hear me swear. That's why it was so shocking to him. That's a pretty trivial illustration, but the point I'm making is your whole life should raise questions among unbelievers. And when you act out of character, it ought to be like, whoa, what's happening with you? Explain yourself one way or the other, because I don't get this. So, we're set apart and we're set apart unto God to be the bearers of His image and His glory on this earth. Let's talk about justification for a moment. Justification is a legal term. It means that we are forgiven. We're freed from and absolved of all sin before God. And He no longer lays it to our account. 
You can look up the passages in Romans if you wish for the evidence of that. But you know what happens in our courts if a person is found innocent? They cannot be retried for that crime. It's done. It's wiped from the books. They are without guilt. The jury has rendered a verdict. Not guilty. And that is justification before the court of heaven. God looks at us and says, not guilty. Jesus paid it all. And I am justified in his presence. Initial sanctification, which I've already covered, is that act whereby we are set apart unto God and where we discover the real meaning and purpose for our lives. Um, you know, I've thought many times, and believe me, I have been frustrated from time to time with pastoral ministry. And uh, there are times when I grow weary with well-doing. And it's usually when I'm marching along in my own strength. But... But I have had those experiences. But I want to tell you something. God knew exactly what I was designed for. Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. That's what God said to me from Jeremiah when he called me to be his servant and his spokesman. Before you were born, I knew you. I shaped you for this purpose. God knows who I am. He knows my nature. If you wanted to sit me behind a desk, Eight, nine hours a day, five days a week, just take me out to shoot me. I'm not wired for that. I'm, I'm a restless person. I need to move. I need to, to see people. I need to have interaction. I need to uh, have some control over my schedule. Um, God knows that about me. And... Among other things, he gave me the perfect role uh, where I can listen to him and pursue him and study and read and, and uh, go see people or do whatever it is that he's motivating me to do. Um, and he gave me many other blessings besides. I, I've been able to do many other things that I thought would make me happiest, but they only make me happy in the context of primarily pastoral ministry. And I carry Jesus into those other realms. And so it is through that focus that God brings me into his presence and sets me on a path that I was designed for. To be made to glorify Him in all the aspects of my nature and personality. So, there is justification and initial sanctification which are done deeds at the moment of conversion. But then there is progressive sanctification. Now this takes it out of the realm of being set apart and it puts it into the realm of daily living and daily living is that place where the rubber meets the road and I begin to follow Jesus as my Lord and Savior and I seek to obey the promptings of the Holy Spirit and I seek to be obedient to His Word and day by day by day, the Holy Spirit within me begins to shape in my heart the image of Christ. 
Paul says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove what the will of God is. That which is good and acceptable and perfect. That's Romans 12, 1 and 2. And, and we are from day one drawn to follow Christ. If you're born again, there is within you a desire to please God. Once again, if you tell me that you came to an altar of salvation and you gave your heart to Jesus and you're counting on Him for eternal life, but you don't want to listen to anybody tell you how to live and it's not up to God. I can do as I please and I'm going to go on my merry way. Friend, you didn't meet Jesus. You need to go back and seek Him again. Because if you met Jesus, He changed your heart. And He put within you a desire to please Him. And so progressive sanctification is that work of the Holy Spirit in our lives where day by day we embrace in obedience the will and purposes of God and seek to live for Him. It's a desire to live a godly life and to grow like Christ in our attitudes and behavior. Now, in the Christian and Missionary Alliance, because it's biblical, not because it's alliance. And I, and I want you to know, um, I don't teach alliance doctrine. I teach biblical doctrine. And I am aligned with the Christian Missionary Alliance because it comes closest to what I believe the Bible teaches. I was part of another denomination and we were like those Ephesian uh, students who said, uh, when asked, um, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And growing up, I said, Holy Spirit? I didn't even know there was such a thing. Um, it was only later that I discovered His power and His presence. And so a crisis of sanctification goes like this. And if you're honest with me, every one of you has been down this road. And you've either come to this crisis or it's still out in front of you. You try to live for God. You want to please Him in every respect. You seek to obey Him. And there's one thing that really gets you that you cannot seem to overcome. If you look at the Apostle Paul's life and you examine his life as a Pharisee of the Pharisees, as touching uh, obedience to the law, he says, I was found without blame. What do you have to do to blame somebody? You have to know they're doing something wrong, don't you? Paul didn't lie. He didn't steal. He didn't commit adultery. He didn't um, take from his neighbors. Uh, you can name the six commandments that apply to human relationships and find that all of the outward behaviors Paul was innocent of by sheer determination. But he said, there's one thing that tripped me up. When the law said, thou shalt not covet. Now, where does coveting occur? It occurs in your mind and in your heart. You want something someone else has. 
you, you want to possess what they have. I wonder if Paul didn't covet power or prestige. I don't know what he was after. He doesn't tell us, but he says, when it came to coveting, I found that I was covetous. And the more I studied the law and the more I tried to please God, the more covetous I became. In fact, he says, the good things I tried to do, I found I didn't have the power to do. And the things I hated, I did all the time. And, and he comes to the final conclusion in chapter 7 and he says, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This fleshly nature, who will free me? And he had given us in Romans chapter 6 verse 12 a commitment. He says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God so that you can be obedient to him. Verse 19, resulting in holiness. And now he says, here was my experience. I tried and I tried and I tried and I tried. And I could not be holy in the matter of coveting. And, and I was miserable. Who would free me from this? And then he burst into Romans chapter 8 and he says, you know, I thank God through Jesus Christ my Lord. He says, this is still seven, so with my mind I serve the law of God, but in my body and my flesh I, I'm disobedient. And then he says, but God sending his own son for sin and in the likeness of sinful flesh defeated and paid the price for sin in his flesh in order that the righteous requirements of the law might be fulfilled in me, not by me, but in me, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. And in Galatians 2.20, he gives this testimony, for I have been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ. He is the one living in me. And the life which I now live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and delivered Himself up on my behalf. Paul says, I discovered something. What I can't do, God has done. God has empowered me by the Holy Spirit as I yield to Him to produce holiness in my life in such a way that allows me to move forward in obedience to Him. Does that mean when you hit the crisis of sanctification, you're automatically perfect? Absolutely not. But it does mean that as you pursue God, it's on a new plane, a new level, that as you pursue Him, the power of God is upon you. And as He reveals to you the things that He wants to change about you, you can surrender those to Him and He is able to do that. Friends, sanctification begins the moment of salvation. Progressive sanctification begins the moment of salvation. But at some point when we realize my flesh is not up to the task and we allow ourselves to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit, it moves to a new level of accelerated holiness. So, here's the question that comes. What is a carnal Christian? Well, the word carnal has many meanings and applications in the New Testament. Essentially, it refers to our body or the flesh. 
And if you look up every verse in the New Testament where the word flesh occurs, sarks, which I did yesterday, you will find that it means a number of different things depending on the context. But when you look up the context of godly living, essentially it is the self-effort to live for God. And I want you to take a global view with me for a moment. What was the problem with the law? The flesh. The law was perfect. It precisely represented the character of God. The problem was not with the law. The problem was with my ability to keep it. And that's why God included the whole sacrificial system in the Old Testament. Because He knew they would fail miserably at their effort. He didn't suggest for a moment that they ignore the law. He just knew they wouldn't be able to produce it and perform it. And so he provided a way of sacrifice to cover their sin looking forward to the cross. And remember what Paul says in Romans 8, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, my worldly carnal nature. You see, God does not eradicate sin from my life. I'm freed from the law of sin and death for the first time ever. I don't have to sin. But it takes me a while to figure that out. And God has to do a work in my heart to bring me to that understanding. And so the word carnal applying to the believer's walk is when we try to live for God in the strength of our own abilities. Paul explains it quite thoroughly in Galatians 3 and 4. Now, if you look at Galatians 3, and obviously we don't have time to look up all these scriptures, but I've given you references to study. If you look in Galatians 3 at the beginning of the chapter, Paul says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell on you? That having begun by the Spirit, having been saved by the Spirit, you're now trying to be holy by the flesh. What's wrong with your brain? You can't do that. Just as you were saved by the Spirit, through faith, you must live by the Spirit, through faith. And then in chapter 4, he tells us this story. He says, I, I want to remind you of Abraham and, and his two children. Do you remember? God came to Abraham and he said, Abraham, I'm going to give you a son. And he's going to become the father of a great many nations and, and, and you're going to bless the world. And Abraham said, fantastic. He was, I don't know, in his 60s, 70s about then. Which is a little undaunting to have a child, but anyway. And he waited, and he waited, and he waited. And there was no baby. And so Abraham and Sarah came up with a great idea. <laughs> now, this sounds really weird to us, but it was common in their culture. If you were married to a woman and one of you could not produce children, they didn't have the sophistication in those days to figure out who, but one of you could not produce children, here's what you could do, legally. 
you could take a female servant if you thought you were the trouble they didn't have it it didn't work the other way but anyway you could take a female servant and give her to your husband for the purpose of becoming pregnant and then when it came time for her to give birth she would the the wife would kneel down or sit on the birthing stool and the servant would sit between straddle her legs and the baby would be born between the knees of the wife and it was perfectly legal and perfectly legitimate and that child became the baby of the husband and wife not the servant life was tough then you know that and so Sarah said why don't we do this 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 must be what God means so let's take Hagar and uh, you can get her pregnant and then she can give birth and we'll have we'll have this child of God's promise. And you know what God said? Nice try, Abraham. That child is a product of your flesh. And he is not the son of promise. Anybody could do that. You didn't do anything special. There's no faith involved here. And so I'm not accepting Ishmael. Now they were stuck with him. And I don't think they didn't love Ishmael, but he was not the son of promise. And if I may be so politically incorrect, he's still causing problems through his offspring. But, when Abraham was an old man, 99 years old, good grief, some strangers show up one day, and Abraham perceives that one of them is the Son of God. And he says, Abram, I'm, I'm going to tell you the truth. This time next year, Sarah's going to have a child. And Sarah is in the tent. She laughs. And he turns toward the tent and he says, why did you laugh? Oh, I didn't laugh. I, that wasn't me. I wasn't laughing. Well, Sarah, there's nobody else in there. Why did you laugh? You're going to have a baby. And Abraham says, oh, please. She is well past the years of childbirth, and I'm an old man. Take Ishmael. And God says, no. No. I promised you a child of faith. And that's what you're going to have. And Isaac was born the next year, the son of promise. Friend, do you see the, the powerful difference here? We can do our best in our own strength and end up making a mess. But if we trust God to do for and through us what we cannot do ourselves... He brings something beautiful out of it. And His glory is manifest. And that's when we come down to the difference between what is a carnal Christian? Listen very carefully. About done. But listen very carefully. A carnal Christian is a Christian who loves God who seeks to live for God, who wants to please God, 
who tries to obey God, who does everything he or she knows to do to be a good Christian and lives in failure and defeat because they're living in the strength of their own flesh just like the Jews under the law read Galatians 3 and 4 but a spiritual Christian is a sincere believer a spiritual Christian is one who is living in the power of the Holy Spirit and depending entirely upon Him for all of life and faith and godliness. A carnal Christian is not, is not a person who claims salvation but lives life in sinful, wanton pleasure. This person needs to be born again. If you say, I'm saved, I'm going to heaven. Let me put it this way. If the day that you trusted Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, your job was a pole dancer in a men's club. If you don't quit that right then and there, something's wrong. You say, I don't know how I'm going to make a living. That's up to God. It's not your problem. But I will no longer submit my body for the lust of men. I will live for God. That's a transformation. If you think that you can go on being a pole dancer and claim to be a Christian, you need to wake up. You have really misunderstood the scriptures. And there's a problem with the message of the salvation that you heard. You need to come to faith in Jesus Christ. So don't ever hear me say that as a believer you can sin with impunity and it's not going to be a problem. I guarantee you it's going to be a problem. If you happen to be a child of God and you're struggling with something, He's going to work on you until He gets it out of there. And if you're not a child of God, then you can live with impunity in your sinful ways. But praying a sinner's prayer does not make you saved. Repenting and believing and trusting Christ as Lord and Savior, that makes you safe.